Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week, we have Laura Sharkey and Carolyn Kelly back on the podcast. They are the co-founders of the Copilot Pet Dog Breeding Cooperative, and I always love to talk to them because of their fascinating insights into breeding dogs to be really good pets. This week, we're talking about social media culture and how we love it and hate it, and how all of us love dogs and have the same goals, even if we have such different perspectives sometimes, and how to get where we're going. Hi, everybody. So we have here today Carolyn and Laura, Carolyn Kelly and Laura Sharkey, who are together the co-founders of the co-pilot pet dog breeding cooperative. And we are going to be talking about just some of the stuff that people deal with when they are breeding and trying to do the best possible job they can at breeding. But it's a it's a really hard job to breed dogs to be good, healthy, good pets, behaviorally resilient, um, and not come down with some debilitating disease that's going to be a welfare problem for both the dog and the person. So we've had both of you on the podcast recently, so I don't think you both need to talk about your your the dogs that are in your house but maybe if you could just introduce yourselves and just give us a sentence about your breeding program i'm laura shucky and i am breeding mixed breed dogs specifically for health and temperament as companion pets and i'm carolyn kelly and my breeding program is called old mission retrievers and i also breed mixes with a focus on health and temperament I have a primary focus on bearded retrievers with a long-term breeding goal of non-shedding lab golden mixes with a calm therapy dog temperament. Excellent. So I think we're going to, we're definitely, because we have two mixed breed breeders here, we're definitely going to get into some specifics about experiences about breeding mixed breed dogs, but we were talking about maybe starting out with what it's like to breed purebred dogs because we know that that is what more people are familiar with and part of what we wanted to start out with talking about is this idea and is particularly I think in purebred dogs that there's a specific checklist that you can follow and that if you follow the checklist so you do your genetic tests you do your clinical health tests um, and then you prove the dog by getting a championship then Certainly, if there are any problems, they're not your fault, uh, but there probably won't be any problems. And perhaps if there are problems, there's something in, on the checklist that you didn't do. So, um, Laura and Carolyn, do you, does that sound, did I say that right? Would you say that that is sort of a, a perception that a lot of people have about breeding dogs? Yeah, I think that um, there is an idea. And I, you know, I hate to generalize about purebred breeders because I am not one. And I'm not really even heavily involved in any purebred communities. And so I know that just trying to put words in their mouth, you know, I'd rather, I don't want to create 
more of a breakdown in communication than we already have. So I can't speak for them, but I know that there are a lot of places online in particular where people will list off, you know, basically the three things that you need to do to quote unquote ethically breed dogs. And that's the only way to breed dogs. But, and if you do breed dogs that way, according to the certain checklist, then it, it kind of, it, it sort of, it's real interesting the way it's described. Like it either means that you won't produce any dogs with problems, or it means that if you do produce dogs with problems, then it must be, and I hate to say this, and I know this is not all purebred breeders, but sometimes it feels like, well, like the owners must not have trained them correctly, or they didn't feed them the right food, or because I did all the things on the list. And so, um, it's interesting. And yeah, I do, I do see that perception. Laura, do you see it too? I would, um, yeah. I mean, for me, I agree with Carolyn that the, the challenges are for any breeder, whether you are breeding a purebred dog to a, a specific breed standard or whether you're branching out and breeding mixes, um, making the decision on who to breed with who and and then maybe having a litter of puppies that meet your expectations or don't meet your expectations is really, really challenging. And getting it right, quote unquote, is is impossible to be perfectly honest. And I think the more we talk about that, the better it is for everybody because it's um it's really hard to do. Yes. I kind of I've often wondered lately, especially if the, you know, the purpose kind of culturally of the checklist, like if you health test and you prove dogs and you only breed to the standard, if you do those things, you are sort of absolved of almost like covering your bases. Yeah. It's like you've covered your checklist. So now you're good. So whatever happens, you know, you did what you needed to do. And, um, but that kind of gets morphed into either you will produce perfection or no matter what happens, it's not your fault. <laughs> and it's kind of an interesting phenomenon because, yeah, because it's, it is so hard and, and, and nobody's, nobody's doing it. There is no way to do it perfectly because they're animals, right? Yes. And, and the, um, the behavioral goals are really, really hard. There is no behavioral test other than the dog growing up and maintaining a history, you know, through the owner. Right. You know, the the the, the behavioral goals are so amorphous. They're, it's such a hard target to hit. There's no test for behavioral. There's no test for whether the dog is going to bite in the future. There's no test for whether the dog is going to be fearful. Right. Um, and I, And I think that it's it's a hard thing to talk about and one of the things i see is that if you do talk about you know uh, uh, say a litter that didn't turn out as much as you want you know it's it's all the same thing we're, we're it's it's the it's the vitriol and the hate that you get online that makes it really difficult to talk about this and the less we talk about it the more undercover it goes and the less likely we are to make any changes in the future. So I think it's a, it's a self-perpetuating problem. Right. I want to talk about problems, you know. For instance, I my last litter was not what I was going for. It was not what I wanted. 
Um, the dogs were more shy than I would have ever predicted knowing the two parent dogs. Well, How well, does that happen? You know, why did it happen? I don't know. And was it your fault? <laughs> and was it my fault? And exactly. does it matter? Does it matter? <laughs> like, I think part of well, the, right, part of the placing of fault is, was it Laura's fault because she did something irresponsible versus, you know, is it something that she did the very best she could? And I think to some extent, we need to have a little grace and sort of recognize that there's a lot of people out there doing the best that they can, right? And this stuff happens yeah. anyways. Then there's people so also who aren't who aren't recognizing the complexities of crossing two different dogs. I mean, of the of the same breed, of different breeds. You just don't know what you're going to get, whether they are purebreds or dogs of different breeds or not. Right, because I I see the same problem in purebred breeders. Right, I know somebody in in my area of the country who is breeding purebred dogs, and she's producing a lot of dogs with aggression. Is it her fault or not? I can't say. You know, was my shy litter? I'll tell you, it's so funny that you say that, Jessica, because I think both things can be true because God knows I do feel responsible. Right? I'm sure you do. Now, yeah. let me also say, let me also say, all of the dogs are in wonderful homes. It's not a, it's not a, a it's not a terrible, but you know, when I say I'm breeding for health and temperament, when I don't produce a dog with great health and temperament, I take that personally, you know, um, and I've made steps. I've taken steps. The bitch I bred who had that litter, she's not having any more puppies. She is now spayed. I'm moving forward with the other dogs I've bred that are really, really great. Um, but it's hard to talk about. I don't want to talk about it, you know, and you should be able to, you should be able to go online and say, I had this experience. I don't want to have it again. I want to learn from it. What are other people's experiences with this kind of exactly. thing and how can I learn from you? But what what would happen if you did that? Well, I can tell you. Well, I'd probably get skewered for breeding mixed breed dogs because well, you know, <laughs> they're unpredictable. They would all say, well, the lack of predictability is all because you're mixing. And if you would breed clones, you know, breed dogs in a very tight gene pool with known tight gene pools for many generations, you would reduce the lack of predictability. Which so is there's two true. right. So there's two there's two directions to go there, right? There's first of all, what are the issues with breeding dogs in a very tight gene pool? And secondly, how predictable, how much more predictable are purebreds than mixed breeds? So maybe right. we could take the first thing first and say, well, first of all, how predictable are dogs when, you know, is is breeding purebreds the answer to this? Are all golden retrievers great family dogs? Nope. <laughs> well, we know that's not true, right? <laughs> right. There, There is variability, right? Uh, and I'm talking behaviorally. You know, what you're getting is you're getting a, a tight look. Okay. But I think the genetic variability in temperament is, can be just as wide. And I don't know if anybody can say that, you know, all of their dogs end up with a similar same temperament. Yeah, so let me let me just weigh in for a second and mention the paper that I was second author on that yep. came out in May of 2022, uh, which I it's ancestry inclusive something something something. We always refer to it as the mutt paper, and that's how I think of it. Um, which showed that purebreds are very consistent in terms of how they look, their morphology, 
but they are a lot less consistent than we really expect in terms of behavior. And in that paper, we were looking at entire breeds. Um, so we weren't measuring individual breeders' lines. We were just looking at, you know, how similar are all Labrador retrievers to each other? How similar are all Doberman pinchers to each other? And we found there was a lot more variety than I think a lot of people expected, which some people sort of said, does that mean that breed me means nothing or that genetics mean nothing? And I like to make the point that breed is different from genetics. So you right. can take lines within a breed or a crossbreed, across breeds. And if a single breeder it really knows the animals that they're crossing, I think they can have more predictability. Um that it's not just about breeding animals within a breed, but it's about knowing the animals that you're breeding. But do you two know the animals that you're breeding? And we do. Well, yeah, that was an actual do. question. Yeah, because <laughs> I know the yeah. answer to it. But <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I I just did a breeding. I'm hopefully expecting litter in the next few months. Please, please cross fingers. Congratulations. Um. Oh, let's see how see what happens. And I'm really excited about the about the pups that are coming. Um. You know, I know both the dogs. I know who they are, what they're doing. They're both very successful in their homes. And I'm really excited about it. So, yes, of course we know the dogs. That's that's one of the huge, huge questions. And it honestly can be paralyzing. Am I making the right match? Should I breed to this dog? Should I breed to that dog? Literally, literally sleepless nights over these decisions. Yeah. And I think yeah. pure, good. I think purebred breeders who put a lot of thought into their breeding decisions are the same way. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And any breeder who's truly ethical, you know, by my definition of ethical, which is not like a checklist of things to tick off that you did, but ethical in the sense that you're accountable and morally a uh, self-examining person who thinks about right and wrong is losing sleep over decisions. I'm certain that's true. Whether your goal is to win a championship or to just produce nice pets or whatever, it's it's a big it's a big responsibility. I mean, you've got a lot of little animals who are going to become people's family members, and dogs are really really important to people. So, manipulating their genetics and trying to decide how to do that correctly feels, I mean, like almost too much like play dad sometimes. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and I, let me be clear. I, I I think that an an ethical breeder is not defined by whether they're breeding a purebred or a mixed breed. Sure. An ethical breeder is defined by someone who does everything they can, both for the health and temperament of the dog, to produce nice dogs. Yeah. I and actually it has. Uh, yeah. I actually had an, an interesting. Um, contact through Facebook of someone who's on the functional breeding Facebook group who breeds purebred dogs and was uncomfortable with the way we use the terms ethical breeder exactly as you said Laura he uh -huh. felt uncomfortable with the feeling that ethical or responsible meant that you followed the checklist um, and he felt that you can there are other definitions that are out there um, so I'd actually be interested to hear you talk more about what what other definitions there could be if the checklist isn't the be-all, end-all, um, if maybe the checklist even shouldn't be the same, even within a breed, maybe the list of appropriate health tests are not the same depending on which what you're seeing in your lines, all of that kind of stuff. 
I have a uh, list of what I define as ethical breeding. It's actually, there's a... Yeah, let's hear it. There's a, um, on my TikTok, there's a uh, video pinned at the top. Let me see if I can find it and I'll read it to you guys. My TikTok, by the way, is Modern Dog Breeder. Ethical breeders provide their breeding dogs with a great life. They take lifetime responsibility for every puppy. They're knowledgeable about current best practices and are always learning. They prioritize health, quality of life, and temperament above appearance or type in every breeding. They have clear goals. They make adjustments based on their results, which is a big one. Because you're never going to, you know, if you're, you can't have perfection, but you can make changes based on what happens, like you were saying more. And you're honest, transparent, and communicate in good faith in all areas. Oh, I love that. And it's not, and it's not ethical breeders do XYZ tests. Right. And breed their dogs in exactly this way. Right. Yeah. That's, that's always changing, but that's kind of covered in, you know, you're knowledgeable about current best practices and you're always learning. So if you're knowledgeable and you're always learning, you're going to know what tests are the right ones for your mix or your breed. And at this time, what's available, that's, that's your responsibility to be ethical is to avail yourself of new information as it comes out. And as it pertains to your specific dogs. Right. Exactly. And whether it's you know, your breed, right your now. mix, and your lines. Yeah, uh-huh. that's right. Yeah. Your breed, your mix, and your lines. And what's, all of that. what's a priority and what what you have to, you know, where you have to make trade-offs. Because every breeding has trade-offs. Every single time there is no perfect dog to other perfect dog with no potential drawbacks. I mean, you can get close, but it's not likely. So yeah, and I I, I think the definition that Carolyn just gave is fantastic, but I also think that that's you know part of what you were talking about. What is the definition of an ethical breeder? Can we put it out there? Because because you know the person you were talking about is absolutely right. It is not a checklist. Now mm-hmm. checklists are helpful. <laughs> They're awesome, but it's not like you do everything on the checklist. So can we talk about the checklist? Right. The yeah. checklist is what it's genetic testing. It's actually physically testing the dog you have in front of you because let's let's differentiate. Genetic testing, like Embark, may give you some information about the likelihood of a dog developing an issue in the future. Then there's actually physical testing the dog, which can tell you if that dog has any actual current. Meaning health tests with a veterinarian. Health tests with a veterinarian. Examining that dog's heart. Examining that dog's hips. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say DNA testing is kind of testing that dog too because... Yes, but it's more more testing what might happen in the future if if in some ways that... Something that you're not seeing today, right? Right. Well, it also tells you who... It tells you a lot about who you could... I mean, in some breeds, there are just these... And most breeds, there's at least one very clear test that you want to make sure your dog doesn't carry for, or if they do carry something that you're not breeding to another dog that carries for it. So it is, I mean, it is. Um, Absolutely. Important. Yeah. We're, we're, Merle, Von yeah. Willebrands. Yes. Right. Um, yes. PRA. My, yeah. My foundation lab carries for exercise-induced collapse. That's common in labs, and I. it's totally fine. She's totally fine. She's not at risk of developing it, but I can't breed to another dog. Um, well, she's retired now, but I couldn't breed her to another lamb that carries that, or we would have affected puppies. So right. that's important. But right. 
it's kind of the easiest test to do and it's like step one dna testing so it's it's critical but yeah very basic i've got the same situation my my founding girl is a merle i cannot breed to another merle <laughs> and that has to be determined by dna not just by look right right, right. there's cryptic merles you need to know what the what the dna says right you know um and so that's easy. That's awesome. It's a great checklist. It's a great tool to give you information. And then making sure that the dog you're breeding is, is currently healthy. Those are awesome, great tools. But what's after that? What's the definition of a good temperamented dog? Yeah, this one fascinates me. You know, like the the folks on, you know, I hate to keep bringing up things online, but I think that's part of why we're talking about this is because many of us have experienced, you know, a lot of the pretty hard set thought processes that some people online have, you know, it's almost as though people have taken sides or joined a club, you know, this is my club and this is what we believe. And, and I'm not talking about purebred breeders in general. I'm just talking about people online, which is a phenomenon these days that people kind of go online and debate things and dig their heels in about their opinions and um one of the things that happens online is that people say that the way that there's no way that people who are breeding for pets can possibly know the temperament of their dog or prove the temperament of their dog without taking it to shows because that's how you prove that your dog can be taken out in public and can be handled by a judge and can be in a crowded environment. And if you haven't shown it in a show, then you haven't proven its temperament. And I mean, they just, there's just no possible way. It's like, aha, ha, why should we believe you? You're evaluating your dog at home or yourself and you have no idea if it's proven. And I, I have thought about that a lot because I've sort of discussed it with people and thing is there's a difference between proving it like by winning a title if you think that proves it and there's a and then there's proving it to myself like for instance you know having it evaluated by trainers um having it live in a guardian home for four years and succeed as a family pet traveling across the country going on vacation and meeting all kinds of other dogs you know but there's no title for that <laughs> there's no <laughs> formal way for me to demonstrate that that's how I'm proving the dog. Um, but I mean, there are things like, you know, canine good citizen and therapy dog certification and those kind of things are very, are I'm interested in, but, um, proving the temperament is complicated and, and, and it's like, well, who do you have to prove it to? And in the purebred world, it seems as though there is an ethic that if you haven't proven it to a judge, then you haven't proven it doesn't count. Yeah, and as a as a person who studies dog behavior, I have an interest in when you study it, you have to be able to define it, right? So when we did this paper that we published, we had to have a way of saying what were the the behavioral traits of these dogs so that we could do the research. And so we very much grappled with and and all the researchers who try to study dog behavior grapple with. And there's there's a whole like there's a whole area of research on on personality and animals and how do you define it and personality and humans and how do you define it and it's hard there is no gold standard you can right um you can take an animal you can't ask an animal for its feelings but you can take it to an expert and have them look at it and there's problems with that um 
a lot of people feel that that should be considered the gold standard, but it's going to depend. Yeah. And it has been shown, there have been studies that have shown that that the answers that you get when you do that very much depend on who the tester is. They, then, you know, right. they could all be experienced and well-trained, but different people just handle an individual animal in different ways. So that matters. And um, then it also matters just how the animal feels on the day that it's tested, right? Like, Maybe it's just feeling crappy that day. Maybe it had a bad experience that morning. It's in a bad mood. So that's a good way to test, but not everything. And then the other way to test is to ask someone who knows the animal well, typically the owner. And this also has pros and cons, right? Where the owner knows the animal better than anyone else, has this very long-term knowledge. So they aren't distracted by how the animal is doing just on this one particular day. But of course, owners don't always interpret body language as well as trained professionals do. They may not really understand what the dog's behavior means and that it means the dog is actually fearful. I love, Carolyn, that you're using both of those. Um, you're both having a professional look at the dog, but you're um, also asking for the owners for their feedback. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah and I, I, yeah. I think the development of something like that would involve both. And, yes. and that's something I'm very interested in. I'm very interested in developing, you know, quote unquote, a better test, you know, a better reading of of the dog's temperament over time. And it would involve both of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Having more idea. And I know like the working dog groups have, that's where I've kind of learned the most about what it would really take to do it in a uniform way. Um, and it's not easy, but it, it gives you a good sense of how they like with with guide dogs, they have the same people evaluating over, you know, multiple generations of dogs and they're all very similar dogs and they're all the same trainers and they're doing exactly the same age points and using a standardized test. And then they can kind of compare one dog to another. What I still haven't seen, what I want that I think you could make a million dollars is how can you, what can you know at eight weeks or seven weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks, what things are predictive because it's in the real world we it's it's very difficult to take an entire litter and keep them intact for two years you know um and have them evaluated periodically and that sort of thing there's a lot of barriers there it's a wonderful goal but it's it's um it's real hard when you don't know at eight weeks when you're looking at a puppy um which ones are you know which things looking at this litter what do i know based on how they're behaving today about how they might be in two years and which ones are the best breeding candidates. Yeah, and the, the guide dog groups that I've worked with have found that the tests around a year of age, um, between, I guess somewhere between 10 months and 13 months, are Amen. the most predictive tests, which I know is really hard for you because you'd like to know at eight weeks, but the fact is that the creature is just so malleable still at eight weeks. Right, I know. Um, yeah. And they're able, like there's some, and I can, I can point people to a paper about this, but there's, um, you know, they've been able to, to do heritability studies, um, which would sort of say, we'll give you an idea of how predictable each trait is. And some are more <laughs> predictable at eight weeks than others, but none of them are very predictable at all at eight weeks. I know. And I that's to change. I've read yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's, and also that is, again, Very as Carolyn convenient. said, quite rightly, that was that's with a group of people who have a very standardized test, and it's also with uh, one particular breed of dogs, Labrador Retriever. And right. so, if we want to um, 
to replicate that, we'd have to be looking at multiple breeds and it would be much harder to standardize the test because, you know, guide dog schools are able to say, to to lay down the law, you're going to do this test at this age and, and try to tell a bunch of breeders they're going to do a particular test at it particular age in a particular way and the dogs all have to be brought into a central place to be tested by the same person like oh lord (laughs) interestingly it's part of some people's checklist and quite a few breeders and people who evaluate breeders uh will talk about how the one of the marks of a good breeder is that they evaluate the puppies at eight weeks and decide which family should get which puppy and match the puppies um to the families and there's something to that however nothing is really predictable at eight weeks <laughs> i still struggle with what does that mean exactly you know um to tell to match puppies to to settings when i really can't tell from their behavior at eight weeks how they're going to be as an adult so i mean i can tell what they might need in their development at that moment you know if if one is on the more passive side and a little bit you know, a tiny bit reacted to sounds or something, then that's not going to go to the house with the four children under five, just because that's probably going to be a harder transition. But I ultimately don't know from that temperament testing at seven weeks what the adult temperament is going to be with, you know, specific to that puppy, other than what I can predict from the parents and the goals of the breeding and all that sort of thing. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, personally, I yeah. feel like I, I, I don't I don't ever feel like anyone is making the wrong decision if they don't bring in an expert to do the behavioral assessment. I also support people who do bring in experts to do behavioral assessment. I mean, I feel like neither choice is wrong. There's pros and cons no, to yeah, both I think, ways. You know? I think great to use an expert or not, but I'm more thinking about like this idea that you never should let people choose their own puppy mm. because a good breeder you should be matching the puppies specifically to the families i've had that brought up as a red flag like if you let a you know family say oh i want uh you know this color and they can have that color as opposed to the other color that you're a bad breeder because you should be matching based on temperament then it's a little unrealistic to me yeah yeah that's fair there's nothing to say that you can't do both either, right? Yeah, to the right. best of your you ability. Each. Yeah, for sure. You know, you can do a little bit of each. I like I like when I'm I do match my puppies. Yeah. And I but I also will will have on you know, the two bre- litters that I've bred have said, "Look, I think any of these three puppies yeah. out of seven would work for you." That's what I've done too. Like I'd be Right? There's stuff there are times where like I said, I can I get a sense that and it is you you know, I have done temperament testing on two litters now with an outside person. And I will tell you that both times, it nothing about it surprised me after, you know, right. knowing them for seven weeks. It was exactly That's a good sign. what I would have expected. Right. Because but I like some were more, you know, this one's more cautious and that one's always the front of the pack. And, you know, this one's this way and you, you get a sense of them and it's it's consistent. And. Um, well, and I, and I think the more puppies you handle over time, you know, I've only bred two litters, but I've been training puppies for 20 years. Right. I see three to 400 puppies a year. Right. 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 So I get a sense of that. But, but let me tell you, even seeing that many puppies, being able to evaluate, being able to give puppy owners tips, well, do this, do that. Yeah. Um, 
it's still not predictive. No, you know? no, it isn't. But By the time the dog is 14 months or three years, right? Some right. of them I think are in dire trouble, turn out well. Some of them who I think are going to be perfect end up biting someone, you know, well, it's still yeah. really hard to get it right. And I think, I think that's what we're talking about here. How, what the challenges are and, you know, Carolyn, I don't, you're saying you brought in somebody professional. Who is this professional? It's yeah, not I'm... a standardized profession, no, right? There aren't exactly right. So yes. Am I a fan of bringing in a profession professional? Absolutely. But who is the professional? How many litters have they evaluated? How yeah. predictive is it? It's, it's a can of worms, the whole thing. Right. Yep. So that's not a good one to put hard and fast rules on the checklist either. <laughs> no. Sure. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of subtlety to that. Yeah. What about um, socialization? So socializing the puppies is super important. Um, yeah. What kind of a checklist would we have there? Well, but is it? <laughs> Oh my That's God, do not come on this podcast and say socialization is not important. Of course, socialization is important. Of course, socialization is important. Yes, so, socialization is important. And there are things that you can do that will help the puppy be the best puppy it can be. Yes. Uh, but socialization is not going to overcome genetics. Yes, right. Right. And so the this absolutely if there's an idea that you you know, I have a dog who is pretty fearful, but it's okay, I'm gonna go ahead and breed them and then just oh. raise the puppies right and that'll be fine. Or um, you're gonna take a fearful dog and breed it to a bold dog and that will even everything out. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. We don't know yeah. if it does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it oh, may. We don't know. Right? It may. It may. In some it litters may. it may and in right. some litters it may not, right? right? Right. But I would I would say that that's personally not a risk that I'm willing to take. No, no, yeah. I'm not suggesting we do it. I'm just saying right knows how it works. But we don't know. We don't right. know. And I think we don't know because <laughs> people haven't done it and we haven't studied it and people don't talk about it. People don't talk about their problems. You know, earlier you said um, that we need to have some grace. Uh -huh. Jessica, there is no grace on the Internet. Okay. <laughs> And if right. that's where we're talking, if that's where we're talking about these things, I think that might be the problem. <laughs> well, that's where everybody's I, talking well, about everything. That is where everybody's talking about it. And there is right. no grace there. You know, social media is a problem. Um, and maybe, you know, that's hope. That's not to bring it around to the, the, the co-op, but. That's what we're trying to create with the co-op, more of a safe place where we know each other more personally. And it's and it's not a us versus them situation, you know, where we can talk about these things. So that's my hope. Yeah, I mean, I have I have big dreams and I don't I feel like we're starting to make tiny steps in this direction with our Facebook group, which is still certainly um, has its its large challenges. But I do hear from people on that group that they do see um, <laughs> at least chunks of time or at least the effort that we're putting in to make it a place where people can talk about things that they can't talk about elsewhere. But your Facebook group is probably the best run one out there. Well, okay. <laughs> so first of all, thank you. Thank you. And second of you know, all, even and the given amount that, of work. even given right. that there are meltdowns, 
with some frequency that we have to that you know that we have to wade in and try to manage and by the time we've managed them the person who is being attacked already feels like total crap right because we can't be there 30 seconds after something crappy is said deleting it um it's it's a turnaround time of several hours at, at our fastest and the person you know the the op the original poster is reading these things and feeling awful so even in our group there are certainly times it's yeah it's just it's very hard to manage yeah yeah but you know so the whole experiment our society is undergoing with social media is not just in the dog world i mean this is a whole new phenomenon where everybody's debating everything and not in person and all of the manners and civilized rules of how you interact in person are just out the window i mean yes it's just like for some reason because you're behind a keyboard and you can't see the person you can just say horrific things and I mean, people have told me I should not own a dog and that I should, you know, turn all my dogs into a rescue because I have no business owning dogs. And that's not even the worst thing. It's like personal, like, attacks on how ugly they think this dog is or that dog is or how it's a, you know, it's this way or that way. Its features are disgusting. and You know, I mean, really? <laughs> it's really something. And and that's not just in the dog world. But but you know what? The thing is, like, we wouldn't be here talking to each other on this podcast if it wasn't for social media. Like we wouldn't right. have a lot. We wouldn't be possibly be able to reach all of the people that are reaching out to us saying, you know, that they're interested in the success of the project and things. So it's totally a double edged sword. Completely. Yeah, and I also want to recognize we haven't said this explicitly, and um, because we've been talking a lot about the um, the tensions between purebred breeders and crossbred breeders, but I've also been seeing the tensions between all breeders and the the very deep and very real anxiety in many parts of our society that about the numbers of dogs who are still dying in shelters and whether That's those that. breeders who are out there doing their very best by their dogs are in fact contributing to that. And I think it's worthwhile talking about that a little bit as well, because that does weigh in, I've seen, to a lot of the anger on social media. And I've been trying to um, to sort of bring the message to the Adopt Don't Shop community that the breeders who do their very best to produce um, the healthiest, most robust dogs they can, put them in good homes, and then are responsible for them for the rest of their lives are like if we had more of you yeah then we would have fewer dogs going into shelters right and that's on the list and i think that's that's the number two thing on the on my my little silly list i have of what do i think makes an ethical breeder is that you're responsible for the dog for a lifetime and for me that means microchip i've been microchipping all my puppies with a tag that is linked to me forever that the ballers can't take off and um not to mention you know placing them as carefully as i possibly can but it's like you know there's one of the there's an ethical you know ethics is something you can study like the science the the practice of ethics and there's one of the principles i can't remember what it is but it's like if everybody did it this way what would happen you know and that's kind of like how you define if something is ethical so if everybody who ever allowed a dog to get pregnant, you know, did it the way 
worth prescribing, which is that you're doing your very, very best. You're doing everything possible to produce healthy puppies. You're placing them deliberately and you're, you know, linking to them and remaining responsible to take them back for their entire life. There would be no shelters. <laughs> I mean, there would be for the occasional lost dog or, you know, weird things that can happen. So, Carolyn, thank you. I think that's so great that you do all of that stuff to make sure that you keep an eye on your on your dogs and are able to be there for them for their whole lives. Um, yeah, so I guess in in the discussions that we've been having here about social media, it just it feels really hard, doesn't it? It feels really hard to talk about anything on social media. And and there's there's it's a great place to go on the one hand to get really to get support and to get some really good answers to some questions, but on the other hand, I think all of us have had the experience of not talking about things. And in fact, even the experience of not reading social media sometimes because we just don't want to read the vitriol. Absolutely. I've 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 taken a step back from social media, which has been really great in some ways. But I'm I'm missing so much, you yeah. know? And so I'm having a really hard time curating the stuff that I want to be involved in and the people I want to be talking to and being able to do that without all of the insanity. And so I haven't found a way to do that successfully. If anybody has any ideas, I would love to hear them because no, there are I parts of it. Yeah, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> there's so many parts of it that I miss. Yes. Um, but, but yet I feel better not being involved and so it's it's a it's a it's a razor's edge it really is it's important for your mental health right it just it if is. there's too much anger in your face like that it's hard to feel good about your life yep it's really hard and it's easier to just keep my head down do my thing you know follow the ethical guidelines that mine are you know exactly the same if not very similar to what carolyn said follow my ethical guidelines and just just keep swimming you know <laughs> that kind of attitude right yeah so. but but at the same time there's that other piece which is like all the connections that you can make and yes you know the fact that we can we're trying to build something with people and that's just an invaluable way to connect to people and i would never Absolutely. know half of the people who have been super important to me i mean i've been mentored online in my breeding by amazing people and I would never have met them if there wasn't for social media and, you know, the ability to connect that way. So it's tough. Yeah. And and sometimes I find myself, you know, it's hard not to debate when somebody says something that's hurtful or just plain wrong or, you know, it's really, for me, it's a battle of like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to not respond <laughs> not respond not respond not get involved not get involved in, in yeah the, but, and, but and i think i think um we can talk we certainly can talk a lot about how hard it is but it's also i would love for us to talk about not just what's bad about it but what we can do to make it better sure um to try to help people know how they can so not this when you're training a dog don't just tell the dog what not to do but tell the dog what to do right right so right. i try to live my life by that mantra and i think one of the things you can do is when you see someone being attacked on social media you can stand up for them oh yeah absolutely yeah absolutely i yeah, that is a good point because it's just like any other 
bullying. You know, it really is just like the kind of things that happens to kids in school. It's a lot of times it's the innocent bystanders who could make the difference. That's for sure. And I think there is um, there's the lost art of disagreeing. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, right. There is it is not that hard, in my opinion, to civilly disagree with someone. Well, you know. It doesn't have to develop into a personal attack. And I think um, I think modeling that is very, very important. Yeah. Well, saying I, that's the stop, part. I, I, I completely disagree with what this person has said, but stop attacking them nonetheless. Yeah. You know? Um, and I think that's a lost art, which which we need to uh, spread. Yes. Revive. Yes. Yes. We don't Share. all have to agree. Right. We don't all We're have to agree. We're not all going to agree. Yeah. And it is not rude to say, I disagree with you, but it is rude to say, I disagree with you and you're an idiot, <laughs> you well, know? Like, and I think that's where a lot of folks, it gets m messy because for me, when I say I try to, you know, if I can't handle it or I'm not there in the mood, I'm not going to respond because I may just be responding and I, I am careful. I try to think about what I say and be very, you know, well, this is a fact that relates to what you said and what you said is, you know, inaccurate because there's this other fact or, you know, maybe you could look at it this way or whatever. And it doesn't always get taken in the spirit, which is intended, which is a debate. Let's talk about facts. If you have a good point and you make it, I will say, hey, that's true. I never thought of it that way, you know, but like I was saying before, there's just this whole loss of civility and, um, what did somebody call it? In-group signaling. Yeah, yeah. What, especially oh. some of the other platforms, not necessarily Facebook, but TikTok is almost just a Lord of the Flies type environment in some ways. And people are not interested in debate. They're interested in bullying. And it's unfortunate. It's, it's pretty rough. Yeah, and I would say if you want to, if you actually want to change someone's mind, so if you actually feel that someone is doing something that maybe even is harming animals. Because I think right. that's what it comes down to to a lot of us is whatever you're doing, breeding practice, training practices, management practices, you're harming that dog and that really or concerns just, me. Yeah, or just wanting to have the this good information and ideas out there, you know, yes. and when there's wrong information or misguided information or things you want to correct it for the sake of good information and being out there in the world, you know, not because you want to fight with people, but on principle exactly right. so if you want to change someone's mind or you want to offer them some useful information they are more likely to be able to say okay i hear you and i'll consider that if you're nice to them right you're it's you're gonna get what you want more easily by being polite than right. by telling someone they're being an idiot right but there's only, oh, my only point is that there's only so much self-sacrificing that each one of us can do trying to wade into the fray and politely disagree with people yes true true it's exhausting act and criticize and have you know pictures of our dogs put up and laughed at and you know have spitballs thrown at them or whatever like there's only so much you can do and then you have to say okay well i'm not going to engage today because i'm going to try to feel good today and take a walk and not, not be out here advocating for my position about dog breeding because it's painful and difficult so yeah, it's a balance. Well, for sure. There's yeah. also the there's also the upside of it, which is the the 
the joy and the excitement of different opinions. Yes. Right? Uh, yeah. You I know? Like so, mm -hmm. and I try to, I try to embrace that as much as possible. Um, because if we were all the same and we all thought the same, it would be incredibly boring. It's not boring right now. Yeah. It is not boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And the other thing I want to talk about uh, when we're talking about having some grace is taking a minute before you answer to think about what possible other explanations there could be for someone saying what they just said. And not this is something that we do in the functional breeding group moderation Group, where we'll see something that someone said and we'll say, oh, no. Um, and then we have to sit down and talk about, well, did they say this because the typical, you know, are they a troll? Are they here just to cause trouble? Uh -huh. Are they lying and just saying this to rev people up? Or do they actually mean it? Are they actually telling the truth about this? Um, I am the one who always weighs in on, I believe them. Um and I am wrong sometimes and right sometimes. I think I'm right more often than I'm wrong, but I have been wrong for sure. But I think it's useful to pause and say, I'm having this gut reaction that this person is saying something offensive. But is that really what they meant? And the number of times I see, and now I'm not even talking about myself, but the number of times I just see conversations where someone says something, someone else gets angry, and the first person says, but that's not what I meant. <laughs> right. Just take a second. Right. right. Well, there's there's what was said, and then there's the interpretation, right? Exactly of what was said, exactly. And everybody is interpreting through their own lens, so right. it can be a challenge. And yeah. and to be fair, a lot of people have been traumatized enough on social media that it's very understandable that they jump to believing that they're being attacked, right? Right. I don't want to minimize that. There's a self protective factor. Sure. Yep, but it's you know we're not gonna it's not gonna go away. So and it's. I'm I'm so glad that, you know, the Facebook group is there and the other other groups that I've participated in and met people have just been absolutely one hundred percent invaluable. And so we've gonna we're all gonna have to figure out how to do this better because we're not gonna be able to not use social media, I don't think. I don't think. No, it's so valuable, isn't it? The FTC couldn't exist without it. I mean, all we were at the beginning was a Facebook group. Right, right. And we did so much just as a Facebook group. I mean, I was contacted by so many people saying, I found such a great match for my dog. I couldn't have bred this wonderful right. litter if I hadn't had this group to go find people who were yep. like-minded. Right. Very true. Well, and I mean, I just, I just, you know, this sort of comes, comes back around. The whole idea of a functional dog. Not all. Right? Not all. What yeah. defines function? Well, function can be defined very differently different people um and and i just i just love thinking in those terms and um and, and and putting the emphasis on a functional dog you know and for me that includes the happiness of the dog the welfare of the dog the happiness yeah. of the people who own the dog you know yeah. um but everybody can have a, a different thing and we can all uh, there's enough people and enough dogs and enough differences that everybody wants something different and um it's 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 lovely to be able to coexist in a group like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, when it works, it really works, right? Yes. And Carolyn? it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Nothing. I was thinking about the um, thing you mentioned earlier about people being upset about um, dogs in shelters and homeless dogs and things. And, you know, 
I, I just come, it, I always come back to lately thinking about how, you know, our, our emotions about dogs and our feelings about dogs are so strong and they really, there's a lot of welfare issues with dogs. A lot of people care about dogs, you know, they mm -hmm. really do. They, they're so important to us and they have such a huge, important part of our lives and all of these extremely strong feelings and opinions and um, things lead to high emotions and high defensiveness. And I just think that, um, you know, breeders are to a certain extent, just like, I think there's a connection between the difficulty that breeders have with being honest and these cultural things we have set up about rules and checklists and guidelines and, and that lead us to a lack of transparency that tie right back to all those strong feelings about who should be breeding dogs and is it okay to breed dogs? And it's, it's a very intense topic for people and yeah. it's very fraught. And I, I, I yeah. see such a, such a, such a, a, a space in which shelters and breeders can coexist. Yeah. It's, it's so clear to me right. that I don't, I don't even understand the, um, the friction. Cause right. you're living it right, Laura, with, with, with the way that you're raising foster litters. Yes. Yes. Um, there are so many fewer than there used to be, though. Um, but we've raised at least 40 foster litters um, for shelter and rescue over the years. And but does... I don't I, I don't I don't know what I don't like I said, I don't understand the friction. Right. Dogs in need need to be helped. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Dogs yep. that are being indiscriminately bred should be spayed or neutered. Um, and we all and... want things i mean we like, all want the same thing we, want, we all want the same thing breeders do not want dogs to be bred indiscriminately and they don't want homeless dogs we i mean i want as a breeder and i many most of the breeders in the community that you and i operate in would like to have it that every dog that is bred is bred intentionally and placed in a loving home and is, and and that the breeding community is responsible for those dogs forever, and so it that seems right. that and all are the same as the animal rescue folks who also don't want bred dogs bred indiscriminately. They don't want dogs to be homeless. I mean, it it will happen. I I suppose there's no possible way that you would ever have a situation where no dog would ever be homeless. But if everybody bred dogs carefully intentionally and was the responsible them for, for them for a lifetime there wouldn't be any dogs it would be very 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 low need for shelters right but we can we can do that and breeders can be responsible but there can also be a safety net for people who you know for whatever reason end up having a litter that was not planned was not predicted um there, there can be a safety net for that, and there should be a safety net for that. Or for dogs that need to find a different home because it's not working out for whatever reason. These are always going to be the situation. So, And also shelters in parts of the country where they are less overwhelmed with being full of dogs are starting to move towards having some 
some other missions which are yes. really useful to the community, right? Like food yes. banks. So helping dogs stay care. in their homes. How about where someone is, you know, you lost your job, you can't afford um, to take care of your dog the way you used to. Normally, you would have previously you would have had to bring the dog to a shelter, but you would like to keep the dog until you find a new job. And the shelter can help feed the dog um, and keep the dog in your home in the meantime. As I think Laura was about to say, low-cost veterinary care, low-cost spay-neuter, low-cost vaccination, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I would like to see more behavioral helplines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but those definitely exist in some places. All of that are, are I, so I think I see a continuing need for shelters, but not necessarily housing homeless dogs. And and that those, I guess on my overarching thought was that I just don't see how that's, it seems to me that good breeders doing that well would are perfectly aligned with the same thought process that people who are in shelter and rescue work who want all dogs to be loved in a loving home. We we all have the same goal, you know. It, yeah. It's it's just um, it's hard to understand why we have to be at odds or and we aren't always, but um, there's a lot of feelings there. Yeah. All right. Well. Wrapping it up, do either of you have any last thoughts, anything that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to say? Well, no, I think I'm good. <laughs> so I think just sort of saying in the end then that that there's a lot of people coming from a lot of different perspectives and we're all voting for root, rooting for maybe the community trying to find a way to all understanding that we all have the same goals. Right. And it's okay to talk about things, honestly. And if we could all have some grace, like as you said, which is a great word, and find ways to navigate this social media world a little more gently, um, it'll be good for the dogs because we'll all be able to do a better job if we can talk to each other. Yes. Well said. Thank you both. Thank you. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we've set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You could also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Marta. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs.